Well, we're looking at Acts. Turn to it, if you will. Page 909 of those blue Bibles. We're just getting started in our winter into spring study of the book of Acts, and I am super excited. Last week we talked about the idea of the, act, of the title of Acts, not just being the Acts of the Apostles, but, the, but the, the title that will never catch on, as Stott says, the Acts of Jesus from heaven through the Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That that's going to be the title that we're going to work with. Uh, that we continue to see, as it says in Acts 1, 1, all that Jesus had begun to do. Like Luke writes to Theophilus, and he says, in that first book that I wrote you, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you all about what Jesus had begun to do, implying that this book is what Jesus continues to do. From heaven, no longer from earth, we see the ascension in this passage, no longer from earth, but from heaven, through his disciples, through human beings, people with flesh and blood like you and me, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is the one who also wrote Acts. When you get into like the 16th chapter as you're reading it, you'll start to see that there are sections where he says, as we traveled and as we did this, that Luke actually traveled with the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, the Christians in this city called Colossae, he says, look, I want you to know the Jews that are with me, these three guys that are with me, Aristarchus, uh, I think Mark and Justice were the three Jews. And then he goes, and those are the only ones of the circumcision that are fellow workers with me. And he goes, but I also want you to know that the beloved physician Luke says hello. He says hi. Tell him I love him over there in Colossae. That Luke was a Gentile who had come to know who Jesus was as the Apostle Paul preached and then began to follow him. Not just as a doctor, but later as he writes to Theophilus in the first part of Luke 1, he says, as a historian, I want to take careful notes of what happened so that you might be more convinced, he writes. And we even see Luke referenced to Paul, in Paul's writing to Timothy when he is about to die in prison in Rome. And he says, the only one who is with me now is Luke. And he says, please come and bring Mark too. He would be of good use to me. And so we see Luke faithfully having walked with Paul. And we see Luke writing to his friend Theophilus that he might be certain of the things about Jesus that he has taught. We don't know much about Theophilus. We know that he was referred to as the most excellent Theophilus, which means he was probably someone of high standing in the society, maybe even a government official, maybe even one who has yet to put their faith in Christ. And one of the reasons people believe that is that the sermons that are listed in Acts are all sermons that are evangelistic about who Jesus is and what he's done that people might make a decision. Almost as if Luke is saying, Theophilus, listen again and will you yet decide? And so this idea of Luke is written with precision and exactness. You know, a lot of historians who don't believe in the Bible have actually found from the book of Luke the correct measurements between towns and cities, the correct names of government officials. Luke has actually corrected histories of the world because of his exactness. And from that, he wants us to believe that he is exactly telling us what has happened, that we might be confident in what he's taught. And today, he's talking 
about the mission of the church. We talked last week about the power of the church, right? And we sort of looked at Luke 24 as, as, as Jesus told his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the power comes upon you. And the disciples don't have tons of clarity what that means. And we pick it up in verse 6 today with their question. But I want to ask you a question before we start. What is your mission in life? Seriously, just take a minute. You, look, we never take enough time to think about these things. I know you. You don't take enough time to think about these things. What is your mission in life? How would you articulate it? A few words, a sentence, a phrase. What would you say? What's your mission in life? You might say, what are you living here for? You know, it's our children that mainly feel that, that stirring up in their bellies as they become of age and of consciousness and go, why am I even here? Why are we here in this place? Why aren't we somewhere else doing something else? Last week, I tried to persuade you that the same power that empowered Jesus on this earth is the power that he has given to the church, the power of the Holy Spirit. And this week, I want to persuade you of one simple thing, that it is because Jesus' mission is also our mission. It's our purpose. It's what we're supposed to be living for. It's why you teenagers feel unsettled in your life right now. <laughs> because this mission is obscured to us so often. I want to show you what it isn't. I want to show you what it is. And I want you to see that the motivation for what it is is because what will be. All right? So I'm going to answer the question in this way. I'm going to tell you what your mission isn't. Then I want to show you in verses 8 and 9 what it is. And then in verses 9 through 11, I want to show you what motivates you is what it will be one day. All right? So let's look at that together. What is the mission? Well, first of all, what it isn't. Look at verse 6 with me, if you will. So when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, right? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They are essentially asking, Jesus, is it now time for us to rule? Now, you know these disciples. You know that James and John, the sons of thunder, had asked Jesus if they could have the right and the left hand of him in glory, right? If they could say, can we rule with you? Is it time for glory? John Calvin actually says of this verse, and, and don't think I'm creative, I couldn't find a commentary that didn't bring this up, all right? So John Calvin says of this verse that there are as many problems with this question as there are words to the question, <laughs> which is interesting. He says that not only is it wrong in this idea of is it now time, is this the time, but it's wrong in the idea of restoring, and it's wrong in the idea of to Israel. Right? The, the expectation of the disciples in this verse is, is now that you have been raised from the dead, Jesus. And remember, we just studied in verses 4 and 5 how many times Luke writes that Jesus was alive. Not that it was a, he was a figment of their imagination. Not that he was spiritually alive, but that he was physically alive. He spoke with them. He had them touch him. He ate in front of them. Over 500 people witnessed this. We read in 1 Corinthians 15. The necessity of the resurrection is paramount. Jesus is alive. 
That's a hard thing to get through, isn't it? Have you seen anybody dead come to life? Well, neither had the apostles, and their mouths were still wide open, amazed at what happens. And so they looked at Jesus, and he said, Is it now time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time now that we live for glory, is what they were saying. Is this the time now? that our lives are going to start working the way we want them to work. This idea that this is the time, the idea that God was going to restore something that had been the way it was in the past, right? To restore is to bring it to its past glory, as it were. And then that it was limited as a kingdom to Israel, right? And Jesus answers them and says, this isn't what this is about. He says in verse 7, he says this, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed upon his own authority. It is not for you to concern yourself with the times that are coming till the end of time when God brings all things in this life to consummation he says, that's not what you ought to be concerned about. That moment of victory and glory. It's not the times for you to know the seasons, those critical events that have to take place before God is, again, finished with his redemptive work on this earth. He says, these are for the authority of the Father only. And what's interesting is that Christianity is filled with people who say, no, this is the time. There have been people throughout the ages from even this beginning time to even now who predict when Jesus will come. I got to listen to some crazy sermons and one of the sermons this week that I listened to was from this Baptist preacher who said that he was bold enough as a high school student to preach in his church as a junior in high school why he was convinced that Jesus was going to come back before his senior graduation. <laughs> And you can imagine his own humiliation when it didn't happen. There was this great preacher in England, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, and he said of people who want to make predictions about when Jesus is going to come back, he said, it's just my encouragement to you. Make them for a long way out so that when it doesn't happen, you're dead and nobody will make fun of you, <laughs> right? The Apostle Paul is saying your focus isn't about the times and the seasons that are fixed by the Father. They're His authority. Your focus isn't on glory now, on victory now. How, how does that communicate to us? This is how I think it communicates to you. Christianity is not about how it makes your life work today. Hear me say that. Christianity is not given to you as a way to make your life work. That's not your mission. That's not Christianity. If you're coming to Christianity and saying, is my life going to work better this way? I would argue, yes, it will. It will work better. But if you come to it for that reason, you're not going to have the power that you need because you're still focused on yourself. And the reason is because we need power. We need power in the mission that has been given to us. If it's not for glory and victory, if it's not now for glory and victory, then what is it? What is the mission of Christianity? What is our mission? 
And here it is in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end, and to the ends of the earth. Everyone who reads this verse and studies the book of Acts says this is the thesis verse of Acts. This is it. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of yours, Christian? Your mission is clear here. Your mission is to be witnesses, to bear witness to Jesus. That is our mission. It is your mission. Remember, we have the same power that Jesus had the Holy Spirit, that's what He's promised here. And we're going to read in chapter 2 that that power comes. But that power isn't just to live your life. That power is to be empowered to a mission to bear witness to Him, to Jesus. The first thing that I want you to see in that is that we will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This one author said that the best way to understand the Holy Spirit's power is presence power. God's presence that always comes with great power. And that the reason being is because the call to bear witness to Him has to be something that we are empowered to do. And so God promises His Holy Spirit to come and empower us. What I want you to see is that mission can be the same no matter what your occupation might be. Look, many of us have various occupations in this congregation. And those occupations are fantastic. They are great occupations that put Christians in all parts of, of the world, in all parts of our culture and our community and our society. But your mission isn't defined by your occupation. Your mission is defined right here regardless of your occupation. Your mission trumps your occupation. The reason you have the occupation that you have is so that you might bear witness to who Jesus is there. And how do you do that? I don't know, but we'll get together and pray about it. That's a challenge, but this is the mission, to bear witness. Luke tells the apostles in Luke 24 that he is going to send them power that repentance and forgiveness would be preached throughout all the nations. That's what he tells them in Luke 24. In 1 John, we see that those people say, that which we have heard, that which we have seen and which we have looked at and which we touch with our hands, that is whom we proclaim to you. Witnesses, right? That's what it means to bear witness. And the Holy Spirit comes as our comforter, 
and as our convincer, as the one who reminds us of everything that Jesus has done and what he has taught, and he comes to empower us to fulfill this mission. This mission is paramount. It is why you exist. If you think that Christianity is for something else in your life and you're trying to make it the engine that drives something else, it's going to be as if you took the transmission from one car and put it in another car. It's never going to work well. It's going to grind and halt and jump and jar because it's not what was empowered to do. The gift of the Spirit is empowering us to bear witness to who Jesus is. And the amazing thing is that bearing witness isn't what we have been backed into by the social pressure of the world around us. To bear witness to Jesus is not first and foremost taking stances on social issues. That's not it. To bear witness to Jesus is with gratitude and praise to speak of who Jesus is and what he has done in his coming as a human being, in his perfection of living, in his bearing of our sin on the cross, and his, of his being raised from the dead because his sacrifice was accepted, that we might be forgiven. To bear witness is to publicly proclaim the hope that you have in Christ. Will that cause you to land in specific places about what it means to be a human? Absolutely it will. But it is not where you start. It is not where we start together. But rather, we are empowered to bear witness. Man, the time flew by. That's not fair. Ah, it's not fair. I want you to see where he's called to bear witness, and then we'll stop, all right? I get to come back to it. This is the great thing about preaching so slowly. It says this. It says that you're called to bear witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the amazing thing. This idea of bearing witness was, for these guys, described geographically. It's true. Jerusalem was at the center of where they were. Judea was the larger region outside of that. Samaria was the region that was next outside of that. And then the ends of the earth was everything else, right? So you see this thing in concentric circles getting bigger like this, right? But this idea about also the extent is Jesus' intention of what this kingdom is going to incorporate, the entirety of the world. Not a political kingdom, but a kingdom where Jesus is the king seated on the throne of heaven and where his rule and reign dictate the human beings who are under his kingship, right? That's what this kingdom is about. It starts where you are. And here's what I want you to know. You are where you are because God wants you to be where you are. We ought to start there. If you think that it would be easier to be a Christian somewhere else, you miss the point. The point is for us to bear witness where we are, right where we are. One of the statistics that I read in, in an article about the spread of Christianity is startling. You want to know what it is? It's this. Only 14% of the world's population who are not Christians 
even know another Christian. Isn't that amazing? Only 14% of non-Christians even have access to knowing a Christian. It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus said, I want you to think about where you are and then outside of that and outside of that and outside of that. The extent of his kingdom. But that's not all that it said there and I, I promise I'll end with this. This call. The, the disciples would have heard Jerusalem is dangerous. First thing, if you had said, in, I want you to bear witness for me in Jerusalem, they would say, we know what happened to you in Jerusalem. You got killed. And when Jesus says, and not only Jerusalem, but Judea, and they go, we know what happened to Judea. We were rejected there. And he goes, not only Judea, but also in Samaria, where there was such animosity. And then not only there, but the ends of the earth. That Jesus invites his disciples to share in his suffering as they bear witness of who he is. And see, this is where it really stops you and me. And we go, man, I, I, I can hardly think about what that means, except that the Apostle Paul brings it up later. He says, you've been given the spirit of sonship so that you might know that you're a child of God, an heir of the Father, and a co-heir with Christ. Jesus is seated at the throne of God, a co-heir with him, provided that you suffer with him, that you will also share in his glory. Now I'm going to stop here. I'm going to stop here, and I want you to think for a minute. What does it mean that you would be willing to suffer in this life? Suffer to bear witness to. Not just the red letter words of Jesus. I love it when people tell me, hey, look, I'm a red letter Christian. I just love the words that Jesus said. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Or that's not what Luke, rather, is talking about here. To bear witness of all that Jesus taught and did. And with gratitude. Praise what he has done for you and for me. To bear witness to that. Jesus has set me free. Jesus has, has given me a purpose for which to live that is as big as the world in which I live. That's exciting. It is to the end of glory. And that's what the ascension is about. I will pick that up next week, I promise. I'll give it to you next week. I'm not going to take you through it right now. Pray with me. Let's go to the table.